All right, guys, I've got a big fish for you today. A, a good friend and a fantastic scholar and a true gentleman, uh, Darren Dahl. Let me just introduce him before uh, I, I, I cede the floor to him. He's a chaired full professor at the uh, University of British Columbia. So he is Canadian, proud of that. Uh, he is the uh, he's, He has a senior uh, associate deanship right now. So maybe we'll talk about some of these administrative challenges that he probably face, faces. Over 5,000 citations on Google Scholar. Recently, there was a tally of the uh, most productive uh, marketing academics who've published in the leading marketing journals from 2009 to 2013. And the gentleman that I have on my show today ranked number one. So a, a, a true top scholar and co-editor of the journal Consumer Research. Hey, Darren, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Oh, I'm very, very excited to have you on. Thank you for agreeing to be on. Uh, I thought I would start maybe first sort of with a very broad uh, topic, and that is your when you first became co-editor of JCR, you wrote, as, as often happens with editors, they write sort of their, their vision of what they're going to do. And I think the vision of the four co-editors that had been appointed at that point was to conduct meaningful research. So maybe you could start us off by talking about that. First, summarizing your editorial, and if anything has changed in your thinking about the issue, tell us about it. Um, well, I think when we came in, you know, like you said, all editors want to make a statement. And what's funny about that is it, it kind of feels like every statement has already been made. And so we didn't really know, you know, well, how, how can we be a bit different? And so we kind of centered on, you know, what we felt was important, which is you know, there's lots of different research questions, different research ideas out there, and there's often debate on, oh, this is good research, that's good research, and, and sometimes, you know, in our field, people get into different little camps, and, and we wanted to try to put the flag in the ground that, that would say, you know, you don't have to belong to this camp or that camp or that camp. What, what's important is whatever you're producing, that it be meaningful to somebody, whether it's consumers, academics, the business community. Yeah, or, or public policymakers, for example. And so for us, we just wanted to try to, I guess, right the ship and say, you know, what's important is to, is to have meaning. Don't be something that's just, you know, silly and, you know, irrelevant, so to speak. And what, um, what, what, what constitutes the, the elements of meaningful research, irrespective of which target we're trying to be meaningful to? Can you give me a sense of what constitutes an example of meaningful? Is it just that... It, People care about it, people read it, people discuss it, people consume it. Is that what we mean by meaningful? Oh, I think that's definitely part of it. I mean, to me, it's, it's you know, if your audience is, is managerial, you know, that they can read what you've done and they can say, wow, that's interesting, I can use that in my business. If it's a public policymaker, they can say, wow, you know, I, I can use that to, to nudge somebody to, to make better choices. If it's a consumer, you know, they could read it and say, wow, I didn't know that about myself, now I'm more empowered in, you know, my day-to-day -day activities. So, you know, when we say meaningful, we, we mean, you know, don't just make it a, you know, an academic exercise in your head. Make it something that, that is going to actually, you know, motivate someone to, to think a bit or to do something different or to see the world in a different way. You know, it's, it's, it's by the way, it's music to my ears because I, I couldn't agree <laughs> more with you. Uh, and one of the reasons why I was frustrated with some of the outlets is precisely because I think oftentimes they have succumbed to this and I just wasn't willing to to play along with that game. I think one of the things that marketing academics do really well and are incredibly well trained at doing is doing science, right? So, mm -hmm. so methodologically, 
uh, irrespective of the paradigm that you come from, you're likely to be a good practicing scientist. Uh, but of course, doing good science is only you know, part of the equation, and at least in terms of heeding your, your call for meaningful research. You have to be tackling interesting problems, big right. ideas. And this is, I think, where oftentimes, regrettably, and I, I think you'll agree, uh, where we fail as marketing academics uh, because we're concerned about, and I say we, I don't include myself in it. I'm being charitable by including myself in it. Uh, people succumb to these careerist uh, pressures where they know what is required of them to have the proper blueprint to fit the right. paper here and there. I mean, is that, right. am I saying something right? No, you are for sure. I mean, and that's, as an editor, my, my favorite thing now is to say you don't have to follow a cookie-cutter approach to, to science. And, and my greatest fear was that at some of our journals, me, our, my journal specifically, people said, oh, you had to write a paper that looked like this. It had to do one study that did this, one study that did this, one study that did this. And they said, if you followed this formula, you know, then you would get published. And in my view is you know, that just hurts science. If, if, if you put these constraints on papers and research projects, you know, you're, you're, just, you're just doing a system and, and it, that stifles creativity and innovation. So I, I love it when I can write a letter that says, you know, you don't need mediation because what you've done is interesting in and of itself. Let's just go with that. And, and that's kind of fun. I'd like to try to break the the stereotypes that have come on into our field. So, yeah, what you're saying is true. Oh, my goodness. I think I, I need to start sending papers to JCR after hearing you say this because <laughs> your example of mediation is exactly the one that I was going to pick uh, because uh. I know of uh, faculty members, of course, I won't mention any their names, who teach their doctoral courses mm -hmm. with the view of moderators and mediators, right? I mean, so the course is, is, is not taught officially as how to publish in JCR, but effectively that's what it is. And, and I find that, frankly, quite uh, epistemologically creepy. So, wow, that's wonderful, Darren. Uh, all right, so yeah, I guess, and, go ahead. I would say, and that's not to say that, you know, mediation and moderation isn't good and useful, but not everything has to be the same. That's, I guess, what I want to say. And in some phenomena, you know, you need to show some mediation. And in other phenomena, you know, moderation is a better approach. In some phenomena, you know, that's not what you need at the moment. So I just think whenever you, whenever you have, you know, a dogmatic approach to how to do science, then I think you, you're, you're kind of hurting yourself. And, yeah. and that's, that's a bit dangerous. So I've had fun trying to push back on that a little bit. Gotcha. Uh, next, which kind of relates to sort of our, our grand epistemological discussion, is a, a presidential address that I saw you give. I think you'll correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was at SCP where you yep. were talking about play. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I mean, I'll tell you how I connected to that uh, topic. But first, maybe you could give us a sense, a summary of that brilliant address. Oh, brilliant. Okay. That's, that's, that's a bit aggressive. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> What I what I had tried to do in that specific uh, keynote was to try to emphasize the the importance of play in life and and play in creativity and in you know those of you that you know have researched or know a little bit about play um, it has a long history in science dating back well over a hundred years where people have tried to understand you know why why we play why animals play why humans play and 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 what is it and you know, if, if you take a, a close and a deep reading on the notion of play, 
you know, it's, it's fascinating. And why is it fascinating? It's because we all do it. It's, it's actually necessary to culture. It's necessary to survival. It's necessary, you know, for happiness. And so my big push was to reconsider play in terms of doing research. And, and back to the previous comment, when you get too routinized and you get too, you know, you're just going through the motions, you lose the fun of it. And I think, <coughs> excuse me, you know, a lot of people look at academics and say, why the heck do you do that job? Right. And, and that's a fair question. But for me, I mean, a big part of it is this notion of play is that, you know, when you're an academic, in some ways you're an entrepreneur without the risk, right? You have the ability to just have fun, chase down interesting questions, be curious, and, and that's playful. And so my, my, my address was to try to make people or get people to consider, you know, where does that fit in your life? Like, are you actually having fun? Because if you're not having fun, you know, the job becomes a little painful. Right. Uh, you know, I, as you probably know, I mean, I've lived my life almost, not almost, to a fault along with what you're saying, because uh, mm -hmm. actually I did take a lot of intellectual risks, right? In developing the, the field of evolutionary right. consumption, I was completely out of the norm. The first 10 years or so, I was the only guy doing this stuff. And of course- You've I'm, always been a rebel, man. There you go. <laughs> Listen, what we're doing right now, talking, for me, this is exactly an instantiation of play. I get to sit down with somebody uh, that I admire, who probably has some a lot of interesting things to say, and I get to do this. I'm not making money on this. It's not appearing so fancily on my CV, but I get the chance to do this. Therefore, I pursue it. And so I couldn't, you know, I. That's why when I was listening to you, I was like, my goodness, this guy really gets it. Perhaps because that's how I live my intellectual life. That you know, I don't. Do you know who Lionel Lionel Messi is, the soccer player? Yeah, of course. Right. Uh, the reason well, I'm arguably the arguably the best in the world right now. I don't know anymore. Best of all time. Best of all time. Oh, Correction. Now, I have... you're getting, now you're getting really aggressive. <laughs> uh, the reason why I asked tentatively if you knew him because I recently appeared on a uh, very popular show where the gentleman in question had never heard of him, and I actually genuinely did not think that there was a human being alive on Earth today who had not heard of Lionel Messi, but apparently I had found one. It, it's no, there's, there's probably a few, mainly in North America, sadly. <laughs> and maybe some of the reviewers of JCR, maybe? Yeah, they, they don't understand the beautiful game. So. <laughs> but anyways, the reason why I'm mentioning him is because a lot of people have said, and, and I agree with that, and it, it speaks to your point of play, he plays the game with the purity of a child who's just having fun. And he, he'll say it himself. He just loves to play. And you see it, the exuberance and the manner in which he he, he just goes about playing uh, is, is exactly what you're saying. So whether it be in the pursuit of excellence as an international soccer player or an international academic, uh, I think your your presidential address applies to many, many domains of how to live life. So that's beautiful. Sure. Uh, and I would try to make the link just because I think that's a that's a really nice example. I, I've never thought of that, but it's tr very true. Uh, the fact that he's he can immerse himself in play and flow and whatever term you want to use, that's why he can create, right? That's why you can make that argument, you know, he's the best, maybe, that's ever lived is because, you know, he just loves it. He plays and that enables him to create and do things that, you know, other players haven't been able to do. Exactly right. There. Beautiful. Exactly right. So I thought next what we would do is talk mm -hmm. about some of your, well, at least the ones that I thought our audience might connect with from the very large number of papers that you've studied. So I thought I would just kind of 
prime you about the study in question or the group of studies and you could tell us a bit about it so that people who might not know what consumer scholars do will get a good sense of what it is that keeps up keeps, keeps us up at night so i thought the first one uh which is the one i'm thinking about oh yeah this one uh, the the um well colloquially the fat suit set of studies maybe right. can, now of course you shouldn't say fat you should say differently differently weighted that is the politically sure. correct Sure. So tell us about that stuff. It's fantastic work. Sure. So let me set it up, I guess. There's, there's different ways that, that, that people come up with research ideas. There's different ways that people approach research. And I'm more of a, a phenomena-based guy. And, and so what I mean by that is, is most of my research ideas don't come from reading other articles. That's one way to, to, to figure out you know, where are the research gaps in the world. Mine tend to come from things that I see around me. So most of my papers have a story behind them because, you know, myself or one of my co-authors saw something interesting and we're like, why the hell does that happen? And so this specific paper, you know, comes out of, you know, being in a movie theater and walking up to to get the popcorn. You got to you got to get loaded, right? You get the popcorn and the pop and the candies. And as you're standing in the line, you know, I looked around and lots of different people. And in North America, we have big people, we have small people, we have all kinds of different sizes. And and I was watching people as I'm in the line and, and seeing what they're ordering and, and, you know, making a guess, right? And, and so I see a really big person and I think, oh, they're going to order a lot because they're a big person. And in fact, they order just a little bit of, you know, a little small popcorn, a little small drink. And then a little skinny person comes up and, and, and they have like two popcorns. Maybe they were sharing. I don't know. And, and drinks and candies. And I'm like, wow, you know, I wonder if the things that other people order, does that influence what I order? Because I got up to the front. And and I ordered a lot, and I was like, well, now why did I order a lot of stuff here? And so that's the that's where the question started: is does the size of other people around us impact us? And most people would say, no, forget it, man. I'm independent. I would never be influenced by other people. And so we wanted to figure out: is 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 that really true? And so we decided we would build what's called a, an obesity prosthesis. In other words, a fat suit. And I live in Vancouver, and, and a lot of Hollywood production happens here. And one of the, the movie studios' uh, costume slash, you know, set creation firms is up here, and they did the the movie Moulin Rouge. Right. So they're very good at building, you know, cool costumes. Right. And so we went to them, and we said, we would like to make this person, and it was one of our research assistants. She weighs about 90 pounds. Soaking wet, and we said, "Can we make her really big?" And they're like, "Whoa, we want to do that. That'd be fun." And so they built a special thing for her that she could put on, and she'd go from ninety pounds to two hundred pounds, and nobody could tell. Like you couldn't tell that she was she was wearing this. And so what we did then is we put her in place, so to speak, to see if people would change, you know, what they what they would eat or what they would order. And, and the the punchline is it really does matter. And Interesting, at least it's interesting to me, is if it's an obese person, a big person, you because of the stigmas and uh, that we have in society against big people, you push away from whatever they do. So if if they order a, a lot, then you order a little because you don't want to be like them. You nice. don't want to be like Mike, so to speak. Whereas if it's a skinny person, right? Because we have this desire—not everybody, but most on average—to try to you know lose weight and be skinny. You will do, you'll, you'll follow, you'll mimic whatever the skinny person does. And so if they eat a little, then you'll eat a little. If they eat a lot, then you'll eat a lot. And, and so, you know, the most dangerous people out there 
are the skinny people that eat a lot of food. <laughs> so you're basically saying that people should go out to dinner with me. Is that is that the insult that I'm hearing here? Is that what you're trying to well, tell me, editor of JCR? If you eat a little bit, actually, you're pretty dangerous too because then I'd be like, I just don't want to eat a little bit because look at that guy. No, you're fine. Come on. Uh, I love that study. I mean, of course, because of the, I mean, the topic, but I love the fact that, you know, I guess there aren't enough field experiments in consumer research, right? I mean, uh, typically, of course, people love the, the, uh, the ability to control things in a lab, uh, but so what is the reason? Why is there such a reticence or or a lack, a lack of prevalence of field experiments? I know that now some folks are trying to promote it. I think there's a conference that happens yearly at UCSD. I think mm-hmm. on Amir is involved in it where uh, they try to discuss field experiments in consumer research. But do you have a sense of why that hasn't been used more than it should have been used? Well, tr- tr- I mean, tr- truthfully, they're, they're harder to do and they're more expensive yeah. to do. Um, we have seen in the field, and, and I can say this as, as the editor, uh, an increase in the number of field experiments uh, over you know 2000 to 2010. It, it moved from about 10% of studies or papers were, were field experiments or had field experiments to about 20, 25. Hmm. And then when MTurk showed up about four or five years ago, uh, we saw an explosive growth growth in MTurk or online type studies, and and the field studies went back down. But now field studies are coming back up, uh, coupled to, to MTurk. But the reason we don't see more is, is number one, it's, it's harder to do. It's just easier to run a couple of MTurk studies. Right. And two, it takes a lot of resources, finances. And three, sometimes it's, it's also hard to get uh, agreement or clearance uh, from organizations, for example. Like we had a right. study that we did recently that was published on luxury fashion goods. And we asked all kinds of stores if they would let us, you know, do the study in their store. And they're like, yeah, no, talk to the hand. No, no, no. So we couldn't actually do it in a store and we had to come up with more creative ways to do the study. Right. Got it. Uh, st- uh, next set of studies, right? I guess it's really one paper, your uh, sort of contamination paper. But before you answer that one, uh, I have a personal anecdote that kind of speaks to, sure. to, to your study. Uh, so in, in all of my courses, whether it be undergrad, MBA, MSc, PhD, I always have them do a you know a research project that sort of takes them through all of the steps of the research endeavor. And uh, many years ago, I can't remember exactly when, over certainly more than ten years ago, I had an undergraduate group that had that studied something that was very relevant to your paper. Uh, they looked at so when you're in a supermarket and you've got let's say six products, the same exact same product that are in a in an, in an aisle, right, in a, in a column, uh, people won't pick the first one, but will go further back, uh, sure. precisely for reasons that you you probably discussed in your paper. But of course, what was strange in this case is that it was irrational, and that there is really no contamination fear, right? I mean, you're it's not like you're holding fruits. And yet the phenomenon I think that you've uncovered applied even in this kind of irrational context. Yeah. Having, having said that, tell us about the, the paper in question. Well, no, I mean, the setup story is, is identical, actually. Okay. It's, it was me at a bus stop, and I'm watching people picking the newspapers when they had the newspaper boxes. Right. People always take the second newspaper. And, you know, you walk over there, and you're like, there's nothing freaking wrong with that first paper. But people always lift it and take the one. And, and they do that, like you say, in grocery they do it in in like the Gap or or uh, you know Hollister. They, they they take the second sweater. They go try that one on, and then sometimes they come back and they take this third sweater and go buy it. And and it's 
people are weird. And so, you know, we, we saw that and we're like, well, what, what's going on? So we, we ran a, a series of field studies and we looked at, you know, this notion of contamination that people, you know, just generally are hardwired since we're very little to, to be worried about people that touch things. And we, we have a preference, you know, not to, to buy something that, that's been touched. And so the, the setup in terms of the studies was, you know, we used a real store and we varied, you know, how recent it looked like someone had touched it. So was it on the rack? Was it on the return rack? Or was it, you know, in the dressing room? And you, you get a nice linear effect that shows that, you know, the closer it is to someone else touching it, the more you're like, no, I don't want that. And what's interesting is there's, and this is where we talk about moderators, things can, can upset that linear relationship. And one thing is time. You know somebody else has touched it, but just magically, if, if you think it's happened, you know, hours ago, the, the cooties, the, the touch will disappear. Right. Whereas if it happened one minute ago, oh my God, it's terrible. And so, you know, time is one big moderator. The other big moderator that we thought was interesting is, is obviously who touched it. Right. And, and you get a nice cross-gender effect. This is to your world of perhaps evolution. Um, if it's a beautiful woman that's touched the product and you're a man, you can't touch it enough. You just <laughs> want that on you. You, you. you live it. And the same with women even. They, they want, you know, if a good-looking man is, or they believe a good-looking man has touched it, they just can't get it close enough to them. And so, you know, the, the net result of this type of research is that, you know, how you set up your store you know, how, how, how you, you know, let things touch or not touch, you know, is really important. And, and we've, we've looked at other contamination. Some of my co-authors have published some cool papers on, you know, how even products touch. So if you've got cookies in the shopping basket and you've got, you know, tampons or something on top of them, people like the cookies less, even though they're all packaged and they don't, they're not, they're not touching each other, right. but they're touching each other in the packages. And so people have very uh, interesting you know, hard hardwired rules on this notion of touch. Well, I mean, the the word hardwired is a is a perfect segue to what I was going to talk about next, because of course, evolutionary psychologists have studied, discussed as mm -hmm. an evolved response, and and where I think uh, some of the work that you're talking about might join some of the work that the evolutionists talk about is that they, they viewed, uh, and actually I have a study that I haven't published, which I'll talk about ne uh, next to you about. Uh, they view discussed not as a domain general uh, response, but rather there is a there are domain specific triggers of disgust that can lead us down different pathways. So for example, sexual disgust will be different than moral disgust, which will sure. be uh, different from uh, pathogenic disgust, uh, mm -hmm. which is, I guess, the example that you were talking about in your context. And so in, with one of my former uh, graduate students, uh, what we try to do is take exactly this idea that had been developed by evolutionary psychologists and apply it in a consumer setting whereby we would elicit, we would prime people for one of these three sources of disgust and then, and then see downstream whether their attitudes towards products, whatever the dependent measures were that we were measuring, would only be activated if the product was relevant to that source of disgust. So if I'm talking about online dating, then mm -hmm. then the sexual disgust context might be relevant. If I'm talking about food, then the pathogenic disgust. And so we, so anyways, the bottom line is that we didn't really get very compelling results and we, we haven't pursued it yet. But I wonder, I guess that could kind of lead us to the next question. And as an editor, of course, you're in a perfect position to talk about this, right? So we put it away because we realize 
that it's going to be a very uphill battle to overcome the file drawer problem and the null effects bias, uh, which of course is a real shame because I'd like to think that even if the results didn't come out as we had planned, there is an interesting story to be told. What's your view on that? I mean, as a scholar first, but then of course as editor second. Well, I mean, there's a lot of debate currently, you know, in the field on on issues related to everything from sample size to, to file drawer problems to you know what what is the the right what are, what is what are the things that we should be publishing and, and I think you point to something that's very interesting that you know we do have a bias towards papers and and research projects that do show you know not not significant findings you know things that 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 follow a pattern things that you know are much clearer perhaps than the messy world really is you know that's that's been the norm, I guess you could say, in the field for for decades upon decades. Um, is there is there changes afoot? I, I think so at some level. Maybe not so much on 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 null studies per se, but more or less on the need for replication and the need right. to you know be satisfied with with what we're seeing. And there's lots of different opinions on this, frankly. Um, my belief for where I sit is you know. It's difficult to find effects that are so incredibly robust that they will they will transfer in every culture and every situation, and and it's difficult to replicate. Uh, to be honest, even if even if effects are real, so the contamination effect that, that we found is a pretty robust effect here in North America. But what's interesting is I do believe, though I haven't tested it, that in other cultures, you know, the notion of touch actually is 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 many ways positive. I've had many people from Israel tell me as example that, you know. When things have been touched by a lot of people, that means they're valuable and you want them, right? And so, you know, I think we have to be sensitive that, you know, there's lots of interesting things out there. And, and when, again, back to where we started, when you have a very dogmatic view of things, whichever side you're on, you know, I think it's a bit, it's a bit dangerous. Right. And, and maybe the field is opening up. And it's not just, you know, consumer behavior. It's, 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 you could argue science in general. Right. That, you know... Because we now, and then you could say technology might drive this, we have the ability to put a lot of stuff out there right. and, and we can let people see. Exactly. And, and, and the collective, you know, will, will define it. Big data of science, I guess. I mean, my position would, would be as follows. Sometimes you get a null effect because, frankly, the, the, the stuff that you're studying, the postulated links, the, the bedrock of your theoretical concepts is is incorrect right so if i try to say oh, sure. right in which case it makes perfect sense that you as the editor would reject this paper i mean frankly not because the effect is null but because it's a bunch of nonsense on the other hand in other cases you get a null effect because uh, so i'll give you an example from a study that i had done many years ago yeah. which i never published uh i was looking at uh, the effects of dysphoria the opposite of euphoria so sort of a enduring state of blueness so it's more than just I feel, you know, shitty today. It's, you know, my dog has passed away and I'm not getting along with my wife. I hate my job. But it's not quite clinical depression. <laughs> and, uh, well, you were in a dark place when you ran this study. <laughs> no, actually, you know how I got uh, motivated to do that study? I, was, I had, I had uh, seen uh, George Lowenstein giving a, uh, an invited lecture at an economic psychology conference and uh, I think it was in Norway in 1995, where he was talking about the need to incorporate hot cognition into decision making, which eventually oh. led to his classic paper in OBHDP on hot versus cold cognition. Sure. And, and as somebody who studied 
you know, other than, of course, my main thing is evolutionary psychology and evolutionary consumption. You know, I was trained in psychology and decision-making, sequential choice and so on. I thought, oh, why don't I study these sequential choice issues uh, in the context of people who are really, in a sense, uh, blue. And so I did a study where I looked at dysphorics versus non-dysphorics in terms of how much effort they put into a sequential task. And I think there was something like 16 or 17 different dependent measures. And on almost all of them, I, I obtained no difference between the two groups. So if anything, there was a clear robustness in the null effect, right? And that, in a sense, coincided well with the literature because some people had found that dysphoria improves performance. Some had found it, 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 it worsens it. Some had found an inverted U-shape. So it was all over the place. So I had sent the paper to a special issue of cognition and emotion on decision-making and emotion. So it, was, it couldn't have been more perfectly placed. And then the editor in question, someone that we both know who's a, you know, a lovely guy and a top scholar, said, hey, great stuff, but you know, null effects. And now... Looking back in retrospect, this is more than 18, 19 years ago, to me, it makes no sense that this paper has never been heard other than me now discussing it with you and a few other cases. There is value in that story having been documented in the archival record, yet because it was all null, it's gone. It disappears. That's not yeah. good. I mean, there's just, there's just no journal of null effects. That's all I can say. There's no yeah. journal of null effects. I, I think those types of papers and, and statement points, though, are going to start showing up because of the online world we live in now. And, and I frankly think there's value in that. I think journals won't publish those, though, because they are looking for effects, if you will. Right. And the question will always remain, you know, is it null effects or is it just, you know, the studies were not designed well, there's something wrong. And, and, and that's always difficult to ascertain. To be, I mean, we just can't. But that being said, I agree with you. I think there's value in knowing the, the null effects that are out there. And that's the issue with, you know, the, the notion of replication is, you know, some effects, you know, replicate a lot, but maybe we don't have the full picture because we don't know the times that, that they don't replicate, if that right. makes sense. Right. No, I get, I get you. All right. Let's move on to the next one. Oh, it's interesting, though. Sorry, I mean, it's, yeah. that's a debate that's going to continue. So right. you could probably have that with like every... CV person you have on the show. <laughs> uh, by the way, I've had so far uh, Brian Wansink, Michel, oh, Michel Pham, and yourself, and I'm looking at a few others. Uh, and later we'll talk about actually this the idea that you know a lot of people have reticence to do the things that you and I are doing right now. Uh, and in a sense, I of course have to pick people that are you know, very prominent in the field, but people who can pull off what we're doing. And, and, and regrettably, it's not as common as you might otherwise think. A lot of people are quite timid uh, to actually appear in such contexts. So we'll talk about that later. But uh, let's move that's, on. That's surprising to me, actually. Is it? Okay, well, well yeah. you, do you want to tell me about it now or do you want to leave well, it for... Most of us probably think that uh, people just aren't that interested. So, I mean, I think... Uh... <laughs> well, okay, so maybe, maybe we'll talk about it now. Uh, uh, and then we'll go back to some of your other research. Uh, so one of the things that uh, I've certainly tried to champion in, in, a, in a small way, I, I hope that I'm contributing to that uh, discussion, is that, look, I think it's it's wonderful. It is, it, it is a central part of our job to create new knowledge. I mean, obviously, and I love to do that and you love to do that. It's important to teach that knowledge to our students. But it's also important uh, to have a clear bridge to the outside world, to the public at large. Right. Uh, I mean, if I can write something that could be consumed by two million people, uh, yeah. I mean, you'd have to be a lunatic 
uh, to think that that is not better than if it is read by three reviewers and an editor and your mom, right? So, so the reality is that we are in the business of creating memes and spreading memes, right? All bets are off. We should be doing everything. But yet, frankly, and maybe you'll correct me if you think I'm wrong, frankly, and this is not just marketing academics. Academics in general have been quite slow at taking advantage from the unbelievable forums and portals that are now afforded to us. Going back to the idea of play, I'm literally a child at play at this point, right? Because I've got all these tools for me to sit down with incredible people. I have a big, big megaphone so I could share ideas. Sometimes I get blowback from people. Sometimes I get lots of love. But the opportunity to be constantly engaged in a very, very broad arena, I'm a kid in the candy store. So, well, first of all, do you think that my assessment is right, that not enough academics are taking advantage of these tools? And if so, what can we do to change it? Well, I mean, so frankly, right out of the gate, 100%, and there's been some neat editorials written about this in the last last little while. Uh, no, it's, it just doesn't happen. There's, there's not enough communication. Uh, the vast investment that governments and, and universities put it in into research, um, yes, there's payoff, but it, it doesn't filter, it doesn't come down nearly enough, and and there's lots of I will I mean I'll be very frank, there's lots of reasons for that. Uh, the biggest one is I- incentive problems. Uh, there's no incentives, and you I'll, I'll call your your bluff here. You said it at the beginning. You know you don't do this for any reward. There's no there's no you don't put on your vita. Um, there's no incentive. Uh, the incentive structure is not to to be on programs, to tweet, to write uh, blogs. There's no incentive for for faculty members to do this. The incentives systems built in to a professor's life are to produce more research. They're not to necessarily communicate the research, except to the students. So our incentives are really to do the research and to teach class, where the research does come to life at some level. So the incentive structures are misaligned if that's what government and universities want us to do. The second thing, and, and you, you kind of allude to this as well, is is most academics are not trained to do this. And what I mean by that is, you know, <laughs> when I when I decided to become an academic, uh, you know, people warned me against it. They said, you know, academic, uh, Darren, I don't know. I mean, academics are, are socially awkward and they have bad fashion sense, right? And and, that's, and they and they wear sandals. Yeah, bad fashion sense, and and so and I've seen you wear sandals, by the way, sir. So I, uh, I would say that you know we're just we're not trained to to do these types of things. And some people, just by personality, and this may be why people are reticent to come chat with you, is they're not really comfortable in front of a camera or you know putting their voice voice out there. It's 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 just not who they are. Um, the third big one would be translation, and, and a lot of the research that's done. Isn't isn't easily, you know, research I do sets up with fun little quirky stories, and you know we could talk about them for hours. But some of the research that that that, ma- that like, like mathematicians or finance professors or you know deep cognitive psychologists that that's not easily translated into things that that, that people would be interested in. And so you know those are the big three I would say on why why we don't see you know the trickle down like we should. Um, I do think it is changing, though. I think a lot of universities now uh, have PR and, and, and communicators that do the translation. I think a lot of the journals see the value. So our journal has a PR program where we, we try to engage the mainstream media. And then we have people you know, like you. There's always a subset of 
of faculty that kind of enjoy it. It's kind of fun. Right, exactly. Well, I do think that, uh, the, I mean, I don't think there's an official change in the incentive structure yet, but I do yeah. see there is a difference in how people perceive some of these pursuits, maybe even as close as 10 years ago, as you oh, said, to now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, I, I, we we have a line on our faculty report. So each year you have okay. to write a big report on what you do. And talking to media or blogging or would never have been on the report 10 years ago. And now it's, it's on the report. So the dean's office will say, okay, good, yay. Right. right. And so that's a change. Yeah, good, good. That's that's great to hear. Uh, I mean, I know that I think it's the National Science Foundation. I can't remember where I heard this, but in one of the big granting agencies, at least in the U.S., they now kind of get you to write. And I hope I'm not misspeaking. I heard this from another source. Uh, so if they're right, then I'm right here. Uh, that you kind of almost have to write an abstract that is the equivalent of a press release to, to sort of demonstrate what would be the sort of digestible, consumable part of your research that would be sold uh, in a press release, which again speaks to the fact that these big granting organizations are looking for work that somehow can be linked to the greater public. So I think that's wonderful. And of course, us saying that does not take away from the fact that you'd still have to be doing the work that gets published in JCR and in the other great journals. So 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 we're all on board. So that's good. Uh, by the way, I haven't yet asked anybody uh, who's refused, but maybe that's because I'm making sure to ask people that I think are are certain to say yes. I'm still waiting well, for one person. So, so the exper experiment is not completed yet, sir. It's not completed yet. That's right. Uh, all right, let's go on with some of your other work. I think I've got two more examples and then we'll go on to some other ones. Uh, your announcer speech characteristic study. Uh, that caught my attention because there's a lot of work that looks at uh, voice quality from an evolutionary perspective as marker of estrogen or testosterone. Uh, now, I'm not sure if that paper was published, but maybe you could tell us about that, that study. Yeah, I mean, I mean that, that study um, was, was published in the journal Consumer Psychology. Okay. And, and we were just interested listening to different people on the radio, kind of wondering, um, you know, what, uh, what was effective, what was not effective. Because, you know, one of the PhD students here actually you know, always used to joke, I, you know, I don't have a face for TV, I have a voice for radio. And, and you know, that's a harsh self-criticism, but it, it made us laugh. And, and so we thought, well, you know, there isn't a lot of research that's been done in marketing. There is in, in other fields, uh, but not in marketing in terms of, you know, what, what's effective. If you break down, you know, various aspects of speech, you know, what's, what's important. And so, you know, we had fun. We actually took the student because, okay, maybe, maybe what he was saying was true. I'm not saying but we took him into, you know, a production house that, that does does these types of commercials, and then we we had him do the the radio play. And then these days, I mean, let's be honest, some of these uh, music stars, you know, Britney Spears at all, you know, they they can have their voices played with a lot uh, live to recording. And so we did the same thing with this kid, and we we changed very specific aspects. And that's to your point, what scientists want to do is we isolated, you know how quickly you say the syllables, right? And then we isolated the pauses between what people say. And so we started to play with these different things and we also looked at the contour when people go up and down as they talk, right? And tried to see through a bunch of different studies how these different aspects of speech, you know, influence the perceptions, right? Because you're sitting there listening to the radio and many of us will put a, if you go back to the 40s and 50s, the real radio shows, it, you create images in your mind of what this 
person would be like. So when you hear these different types of speech, you know, what are the attributions you make? Do you think the person is smart? Do you think, you know, they're, they're a liar? You know, what kind of things actually come out of this? And so that's what this research was specifically looking at and, and trying to identify when you think about radio and, and you have an announcer, you know, where, where are you going to get the best bang for your buck? And, and other, well, at the end of the day, you know, a, a lower tone, if it's a male, we just work with male voice, and, and uses fairly quick syllable, syllable pronunciation, um, you know, that's going to give you the best, the best outcome. And so that's, that was what we were trying to do in that specific line of research, is play a lot with the, the aspects of speech. What's interesting to me is that hasn't been a big area of re even after that study. Um, for some reason or the other, it, it hasn't caught on as an area that people do a lot of research in. I actually, uh, yeah, that wonderful. Uh, I think I might have written to one of the top evolutionary guys who studies voice to try to see if, to sort of heed your call, of trying to do voice-related work in consumer behavior from an evolutionary perspective, but it has never gone anywhere. But maybe this now motivates me to write to him again. I actually have a really interesting personal anecdote that speaks exactly to to your research. And I guess I'm really engaging in, in a lot of self-deprecation here. Uh, so, and you'll see in a... It's good for you. It makes you stronger. Exactly. It's a measure of self-confidence, right? If you can there you make, go. If, keep, right? keep telling yourself that. <laughs> so... so uh, uh, this is many years ago before uh, I, you know, I was married, obviously. I had uh, started chatting to this uh, woman on the phone who, who was actually a professional model. And uh, you'll, in a second, you'll see why that's relevant to the story. And so we, we, were, we chatted many times on the phone. And then finally, we agreed to meet. So we meet somewhere, whatever, somewhere downtown in Montreal. And then I remember as I met her, I looked at her and I said, do I detect some disappointment in your in your grimace right now? She said, "No, no, no. It's just that in speaking to you on the phone, I always thought that you were you'd be much taller." <laughs> <laughs> so, so there goes testosterone levels of Gadsad. I'm shot. I'm there done you go. before I'm out of the. Well, I think both of us are relatively vertically challenged, my friends. So. Yeah, I can say I've kind of been there myself. Yeah, there that's you go. quite funny, actually. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, people people create these images in their head of when you hear that voice. You know what what's it going to look like? Exactly, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. All right, last one, and then we move on to something else. And I chose this one. Well, first, it's very easy to be interested in condom research, but also because <laughs> I think that's some of the research that you did, which actually again speaks to some of my interests of interdisciplinarity. Right. This is where you published. I mean, yes, you've You've cornered the market in the top marketing journals, but you you haven't as much published as some of the other journals. Uh, and here you did publish in you know American Journal of Public Health and other great yeah. journals. So tell us a bit about that research, and then maybe we could link it to a greater discussion on why we don't have greater interdisciplinarity in consumer research. So take it away, sir. Sure. Well, so this line of research really came at the start of my program. I, I came into the PhD program thinking I would. I would do research on cross-cultural uh, consumer behavior, but the fellow I came to do the research with uh, left the university before I got here, and so when I showed up, I really didn't have a research topic, and, and so I w managed to finagle my way into working with a fellow named Jerry Gorn, who is a... Uh, love him, love him. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's an old Montreal boy. That's so, right. Yeah, there That's you right. go. And, and he, he was known for classical conditioning work, so why consumers are 
similar to the dog that would foam at the mouth at the bell type of thing. So I thought that's what I would be doing. But when I went to see him, he said that he had he had received a big big grant, new money, and he wanted to do research in a new area. And I thought, well, that's great. What's it going to be? And he said, I want to do research in sex. And I was like, oh, yes, sex. That's outstanding. I am going to have a lot of sex. And he was like, no, 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 no. I want to do research on condoms. And I was like, that's creepy. All right, I'll, I'll use a lot of condoms and I'll tell you which is the best. He's like, no, 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 not usage. I want to watch people buy condoms. And I'm like, that's really creepy. And he's like, no, that's the research project. So the, the first thing I ever did as a PhD was I hung out in a drugstore for f six hours every Friday and Saturday night for four months, pretending to be a stock boy doing shelf facings in the aftershave section. And I watched people and, and, you know, how did they buy condoms? And I recorded everything. Did they take a lot of time? Did they come with other people? Did they take the box off? Did they rotate it? Did they read it? Did they hide it under other things? Did they take it to the pharmacist to buy? Did they shoplift it? I recorded everything, right? Is it just you're doing it in vivo or you're taping it and then content analyzing it oh, later? In vivo, they, they couldn't set up the film and they wanted me to also follow them, to stalk them, creepy, uh, to see, you know, when they went to the cashier, did they choose an old person, a young person, a male or female? So really get the whole, and you couldn't capture that with camera, uh, at least at, at that point in time. And no, so that that was the job, and it was it was a lot of work, but it it led to the type of researcher I am because as you watch people, you know you see a lot of interesting things. I caught a lot of shoplifters. The the drugstore said if the PhD didn't work out, they'd hire me back as a stock boy. So you know it was it was good. But what we were trying to do, and, and the paper that was published here was trying to figure out well, what are the barriers, right? What stops people? And this was this says how old we are. This was back in the early 90s, right, at the time of AIDS and, and yeah. you know, how do we help people make better safe sex choices. Um, it was, you know, what are, what are those barriers? You know, is it an information barrier? Is it a price barrier? Is it an emotional barrier? And what really came out of that specific work uh, was the emotional, all of these things were barriers at the time. But the emotions that people feel, some people really have a hard time buying what we call socially sensitive products. And what's interesting is often in drugstores at the time, it's changed a bit, you know, they have what they call this aisle of shame and they have all of these products together like tampons and adult diapers and lube and, you know, things that are for many people really awkward purchases. And so, you know, that's what we were trying to look into is, is when do these emotions flare and, and can you come up with marketing interventions that can help people overcome this this embarrassment that they have because you're putting your life on display you're saying look I'm gonna have sex and what's interesting is people are different some people were like would hold the condom up in the air and be like, yeah I'm getting laid and then other people you know very they want to hide it and they jump in and grab it and jump out so it's 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 an interesting product to, to do research on and I was gonna say you really want to advertise it if you're buying the Magnum size. There you go. Not if you're buying exactly. the micro penis version. I got you. Uh, so well, there's there is no such thing. You know, marketers <laughs> are not dumb. No, nobody buys that one. Nobody so. buys that one. <laughs> no, that that product does not exist. But I think in one of your studies uh, within the condom research line, uh, you had tried to manipulate the size. Well, we're speaking about size, but the size of the coupons. And then I think, if I remember correctly, you had found that even yet yeah, there was a difference in terms of them redeeming that coupon 
as a function of the size of the coupon rebate, but not nearly as much as what you would have thought. Is that is that a fair summary yeah, of what? That's true. We worked with lifestyle condoms, and, and we tried. We distributed coupons at, at gay pride parades and at, at other other types of venues, uh, very specific to that community, actually. And, and we had hoped that that this would really drive, as did the company. And we found that the the price sensitivity was not really not as big of a barrier. That this this type of intervention, big coupon like seventy five percent off versus ten percent, as example, you know, didn't drive as much as, as as one might think. And and that was an idea to try to calibrate these different barriers. And the pricing one, you know, we found at least in our research wasn't as extreme. I mean, price matters. I'm not saying that, but in terms of some of the other big roadblocks. This this one is 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 one of the smaller ones. So we've tended, after that study, to focus more on embarrassment. And, and one quick fun example would be like the contamination thing. Right. Like right now, condoms are put next to things that are socially sensitive, and it bleeds. But what if you put condoms next to band aids and to vitamins? Right. Right. You know, you get a different result. And so that's the type of thing that you know we wanted to explore after after those initial studies. Very interesting. Uh, switching gears completely, I guess two two more broad issues to cover. Uh, but again, as I tell all my great guests, I could keep you here for another five hours. Uh, num- <laughs> number one, uh, what do you think of the? And this is something that I've actually been quite active in terms of speaking publicly on these matters. Uh, what do you think of all of the sort of political correctness, safe spaces, trigger warnings, microaggressions? that certainly have taken a foothold in many American universities and now is slowly making its way to Canada. Is this something that you care about? Is this something that you are seeing in your own uh, experience as an academic? Tell us about it. Well, I mean, I mean, first off, I mean, I, I think we have to care about these things. Yeah. I think um, I think it's foolish not to, not to pay heed to these issues. Um, I mean, I guess what I would say is, is, is you know, as an administrator, wherever you know these types of issues flare, you, you want to spend the time and the due diligence to try to figure out how to fix whatever that situation may be, whether whether it's you know everything from from, from racial issues to, to to gender issues to, to to power issues to you know crime. I mean, there's lots of different problems that exist in society, and, and there's no question that some of them show up on, on American and, and Canadian, or frankly, worldwide university campuses. And so, you know, how you deal with them, you know, becomes a, a really important and interesting question. And so to me, it's, it's about trying to figure out what is the best solution. You know, sometimes we, we overreact on things, frankly, and, and then we create a, a new problem right. uh, with, with, with a solution that, that maybe goes too far. As a solution, and it infringes on on other things, and then sometimes we don't do enough. And so I think you know it's trying to see well where are the re- real problems, and then what what is the right balance in terms of solution. Well, there's, there's a, no question right. we can do a better job. I mean, right. all the research shows not all the research, but research shows that you know there's issues that need to be tackled, and and I think it's on us to try to make a better a better university without losing. You know what makes a university a university, and that's you know things like academic freedom, things like the ability to have respectful debate, the you know the ability to to also explore. And I think when you're a young person, you know university is is where you should be able to make some mistakes, and you should be able to grow and explore. 
but that shouldn't come at a cost of, of you know, hurting or, or, you know, stepping on other other people and other issues. Because I, I think that makes sense. Yeah, I yeah. I mean, I think the, the, where I would maybe add to what you're saying is that you're exactly right that there is a tight balance to walk. I mean, you don't want to be frivolously uh, rude and polite, hurtful to somebody. The, 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 the problem has arisen where people now view disagreements as a form of assault, right? And therefore, they create echo chambers, and the echo chamber is basically the university campus, where if you disagree with me, then I need a safe space from your alternate idea, right? And and I, I recently gave a talk at the University of Ottawa under the... Uh, I was invited by the Institute for Liberal Studies to talk about political correctness. And, uh, you know, a large part of my lecture, which I invite you to hopefully check it out, uh, it was to really just document uh, some of the most incredible, egregious examples of political correctness gone amok. And actually, there's one example from your university. I won't ask you to comment on it if you don't feel comfortable because you may, <laughs> you, you may know the person. It was actually a, a, a professor, I think at UBC, or maybe it was one of the satellites... Uh, campuses of UEC, I'm not sure, I can't remember, uh, where she basically filed a grievance that her tenure was denied because it was actually uh, racially insensitive to her because in her tradition, she's, uh, uh, I don't know what the correct term now, is it First Nation or Native Canadian? Uh, There's an oral tradition, and so the whole process of writing things down and having them go through peer review was contrary to her culture. And and that that has gone now to a human rights appeal uh, council, and they're actually going to hear that case. Well, I mean, I don't think you need to be a, a profoundly committed person to academic freedom to say that's lunacy, right? I mean, if, if somebody actually takes seriously the claim that to expect people to publish is an assault on their culture, we've gone too far. Yes? I don't know, man. That that So you've picked a tough one, to be honest. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I know the case. Oh, you do uh, know the case? Okay, good. Yeah, I know the case. It's So So I, I won't come down as hard as you on okay. that case. And, and the reason is this. Um, you know, if if there is so so to me, it's the base of of producing knowledge and <coughs> and so I believe yes, the norms and this is where you are right. The norms in a university are, are to write and to publish. Fair enough. But I do believe that the net and this goes back to where I started with meaningful. Mm-hmm. I, I believe that the I believe that you can communicate knowledge in lots of different ways, sure. and and so. If this individual is commuting and producing knowledge that is communicated in those cultural ways, maybe that's fine. But I need to see evidence that that has actually been done, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that, to me, is the heart of this case. And I I don't know one way or the other because I don't know the analysis. But if, if they're going to make that claim, to me, that's fine. But... What I need to see is that that actually has happened because you can show that you've put in the time, you've put in the effort, you know, the outcome is meaningful and it's tangible. And so whether we write it down or whether we make a movie or whether we do a podcast or whatever, I'm okay. I'm actually okay with that, right? As long as you're bringing new knowledge to the fore. Right. And that, to me, is is the litmus test on this type of a case. I think that's 
that's an anomaly. I mean, it's not in the norm. I think 99.9% of people at an American university are going to write papers or books because that's the norm. But I'm okay with other ways as long as you can verify that knowledge is being created and that there's tangible evidence that this person has done that because then they have a case. Right. What I'm scared of and, and why this has got you fired up is people are using these types of strategies or positions to hide and, and not be accountable for what the society needs them to be doing as academics, right, if that makes sense. No, that, fair enough. Very char charitable position on your part, but fair enough. <laughs> Incredibly charitable. Outlandishly charitable. But hey, it's okay. We'll give you a free pass. Uh, let's... No, I, I mean, I, I just think we have to be acceptance of, of kinds of knowledge creation. I'm just going to be skeptical, and this is where I match you, and I'm going to be like, then show me right. that you've created knowledge. Fair enough. That's what that's what you're supposed to do as a professor. Right? Got you. Beautiful. Uh, last question. Uh, good one to sort of end the the chat. What are some of the things? So now you've been. I guess have you been a professor now for two decades? Is it? I think '96 you graduated. Is that is that right? 96? Yeah. Well, you 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 looked up the CV. I, I yeah, did the no, homework. That's couple, right. Yes. It's been a couple years. Yeah. yeah. So what are the things that you love most? about being a professor, and if any, what are there must be some, what are some things that uh, you dislike from, in your chosen career? Well, um, well first off, I, I feel like truthfully I've won the lottery. I, I was lucky to come into this as an occupation. It wasn't on the game plan. I was going to be an accountant. I was very misguided. Apologies to accountants. <laughs> it just didn't work out for me. I, I I, so I feel like I won the lottery. I'm I'm a bit odd as an academic because I, I like all of it. So the teaching is is I don't have to teach in my current position, but I still do. I still teach close to a full load, and, and the reason is it's just fun. Like I love the teaching part. Uh, the research is great because you get paid to be curious, as I said before. The administration I find really fun because it's really challenging. Um, you work in an environment with really smart people. Some people compare it to herding cats. It's kind of like that. And, and, and you learn that you have to be, and you saw in my last answer, you have to be very, you have to be very balanced and, and, and politically, uh, politically astute. And I've, I've made lots of mistakes on that side, but I've, I've learned a lot. And you know, I find the people that we work with are really, really interesting. And so the administrative part I love too. I do a fair bit of consulting and exec ed. And that's fun because you're out in the real world and you can you can work with a different type of smart person. I think sometimes academics think they've got the corner on 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 smart, but that's just not true. Um, whenever you work with, you know, C-suite or, or leaders in government or industry or, or, or charity, you know, I'm blown away by, by how smart and how fun it is to work with these types of people. So there's all the positives, you know, it's uh, it's it's really fun. No negative, not a single one. Oh, well, I love all those things. Uh, what what is, is is you know on the administrative side, you can never make everybody happy, right. and, and so that's that's hard. And and so people, I like to make people happy, frankly. And the teaching's great because you can usually do that. But with administration, you know, you're going to have to be someone that says no, and 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 that's that's often hard, right? And some people some people get that that that's the office and they respect that. Other people, you know, they they feel they feel a little more, I don't know, entitled maybe. They, and so they have a harder time with the office of no, if you want to call it that. Right, right. So that, that can be hard. 
the other hard things in our job right now are, you know, resources are difficult. You know, I think uh, that that can be tough in terms of trying to to, to do your research or, or run a run a school. I think it, the it's it's tougher and tougher to publish. People always say, "Whoa, you've published a lot. It must be easy." I tell you, it's harder this year, I think, than any year. It's it's. Uh, for me, at least, maybe I just haven't figured it out, but I, I find it's hard. I know you would say the same thing. I mean, you think that your your next your papers are always like kids, right? And they're they're amazing and they're beautiful, and and you know the journals don't always feel that way. True, and that's that's tough, but you know that's that's part of it. I'll, I'll tell you, I'll, I'm sorry. The challenge is fun, right? We love challenge. Right. I was gonna say, uh, Michelle Pham gave a very interesting question to the exact same, uh, a very interesting answer to the exact same question. Uh, when I when I pushed him on what are some of the things that you don't like, he, he he gave the following answer, which I thought was kind of interesting, and then it motivated me to actually do a sad truth clip, kind of addressing it. He said, you know, one of the things that really irks me about my job is when I meet people and I tell them that I'm a professor, then they say, oh, so I mean, other than you know, you teach your three hours. I get what do you, what else do you do? You mean you what do you do? You do nothing, right? And it's funny because I've had members of my own family tease me thinking that you know I just go sit at a cafe with a cigar and just kind of philosophize with people that are sitting there but I'll, otherwise I do nothing, right? Uh, and, but that is what you do. I've seen you doing. It. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. But, but it's funny because that led me to actually do a a clip where I literally enumerated all of the things that a professor does and the reality is uh, I think I could speak for both of us that we probably work 12 to 18 hour days all the time. Now, of course, we don't call it work because we love it. It's but, play, man. But that's what we're doing. We're playing, but we're, you know, so so that was his answer in terms of what he doesn't like. But otherwise, he agreed with you that he loves everything about it. Hey, Darren, this was fantastic. Uh, is there anything that you want to maybe promote or have me point to uh, in the descriptor of the video that we haven't been, we haven't talked about yet that you want to just plug now is there anything that you'd like to do no i mean i think it was a fun conversation i mean i think i think i hope the the listeners and people that follow you you know do get some insight on on what it's like the the challenges of and the fun parts of of being a professor and academic i guess one thing i'd say is i never considered this as a career and if there's young people that do listen to your show you know i i think it's kind of a cool a cool occupation. I mean, you get to touch people's lives and change people's lives and, and produce knowledge. So, you know, I hope I hope if there's any young people out there listening that they would consider, you know, and maybe not even young. You know, I know people that have changed careers and come and done this in their forties. It's a it's it's a very rewarding and, and a fun a fun life. So, what a that. what a wonderful way to end this uh, the the chat. Stay on the line. Thank you so much, Darren. I'm gonna stop it now, but stay on the line. You bet.